I wonder what is the best party, the best party you ever attended. The best party you ever attended. Maybe it was a dinner party. Maybe it was a house party. Maybe it was who knows what kind of party. Uh, I don't know what the best party I've ever been to, but I do know that the best parties, the best parties, they engage so much, if not all, of who we are as human beings. Two years ago, this is one of my favorite parties. Two years ago, a group of us got together and threw a birthday party for my wife, Allison. And in that party, we honored her. Uh, she loves to dance, so I collected the songs from people. We had a dance party in someone's house. It was great. Uh, but it was also, we got to toast her and honor her, but it was also, there were several families who were moving away from the North Shore, and so it was a chance to say goodbye to several couples uh, with whom many of us had been close. And so this was this party that we were both thankful and honored and honoring, and yet there was also a sadness. But above it all, like all good parties, there's something about the best parties, I think, something about the best parties that are hopeful that are hopeful because of this great moment, this great feeling. You feel welcomed, encouraged. You feel seen and known as you see other people and you're having a good time. And there's this hope, hope for humanity. Now, we're in the midst of a sermon series that we've called Jesus Unexpected from the Gospel According to Luke. And the reality is, is there's thousands of superficial impressions of who Jesus is. I wonder what your impressions of Jesus are. And in this sermon series, we have wanted to look at Jesus with fresh eyes to see how just unexpected he is and continues to be for all of us. Even if you've been looking at him and studying and thinking about him for 80 years, Jesus unexpected. And one way to look at Jesus with fresh eyes is to consider Jesus in the meals that he ate. Because in all the Gospels, and maybe especially in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is eating all the time. He's either on his way to a meal or he's leaving a meal or he's at a meal teaching. Jesus is like always eating in the Gospel of Luke especially. And so we're doing this little mini-series within the larger series. And I'm kind of, the little mini-series is Meals with Jesus. And last week, as, Luke allude, as, uh, as Nick alluded to in the call to worship, last week we saw Jesus as a guest he was a guest in a religious leader's home, and he was anointed by this sinful woman. It's a powerful story where Jesus was the guest. Well, this week, Jesus is not the guest. Jesus is the host of the party. He hosts a massive dinner party for 5,000 probably plus people. 5,000 people, the feeding of the 5,000. Even if you're not familiar with Christianity, you might have heard of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is a different sort of miracle if you think about the miracles that Jesus does. In this miracle, uh, the blind do not see, the lame do not walk, the dead are not raised. In fact, no one's sins are even forgiven. What happens in this miracle? People eat. <laughs> People eat. In fact, it's a meal that they could have skipped. We know they're in a vicinity where they could have gotten to a village. I mean, you know, you can miss one meal. You can do it. And also, by the way, in just a few hours, 12 hours or less, they would need to eat again. They'd get hungry again. This miracle, all the other miracles kind of fix something. This miracle doesn't appear to fix anything. It feels like unnecessary. And yet, this, is the, this miracle is the only miracle besides the resurrection. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Christian gospels, Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only, why, what, why is this miracle such a big deal? It doesn't fix anything. Now, there are a couple clues why this miracle is such a big deal. And the first clue, and I'm, this is a little bit longer introduction because I want us to see this. Uh, this miracle is such a big deal, and we see this first in the surrounding text. I want you to, uh, if you have your Bible, look at this. Uh, look what's right before and what's right after the feeding of the 5,000, okay? In verses 7 to 9, there's this local politician. His name is Herod the Tetrarch. It's best to think of him as a governor, like the, the, the president is the emperor of the Roman Empire, the Roman emperor. And then Herod the Tetrarch is like a governor, okay, over this region, the region of Galilee in this case. And he has been hearing more and more about Jesus. And Herod is confused because some people are telling him that it's John the Baptist who he taken his head off. And some people are saying that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Other people are telling them that Elijah, a long dead Hebrew prophet, has reappeared. And so verse 9, Herod asks, who is this? Who is this about whom I hear such things? Now look at the passage immediately following the feeding of the 5,000, verses 18 to 20. This time it's Jesus asking the question. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do they answer? They say, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah or one of the prophets. Sound familiar? Then he asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, do you think it's a coincidence in the passage right before and the passage right after, the questions ask, who is Jesus? And there's an allusion to both John the Baptist and Elijah. It is not a coincidence. <laughs> uh, this is a very technical term. This is a literary sandwich. Very technical, very technical. There's two pieces of bread asking the question, who is Jesus? And the answer, the meat, is in the middle. Who Jesus is has something to do, who he is has something to do with feeding 5,000 people in a remote location in the wilderness. Now this feeding, this feeding is an echo uh, from Jewish history. It's an echo from Jewish history in three different ways. First, it's an echo of the Exodus. Now, the Exodus is the story of a man named Moses leading the people of God by God's hand out of the land of Egypt, and they pass through the wilderness, and there's no bread to eat, and so God rains down what is called manna. They are fed with bread from heaven. And in this story, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is presented as the new and better Moses, the one who provides bread to the people. Second echo is a great prophet Elijah, a little bit less known story. In 2 Kings chapter 4, the prophet Elijah feeds 100 people with 20 loaves of bread. And this story is presenting Jesus as the new and better Elisha. But the third echo, and this is all throughout Scripture. In fact, it's in our call to worship. It's also in the passage I'm going to allude to right now. This is an echo from the Jewish Scriptures, what the Christians call the Old Testament often. This is an echo of the Messianic banquet that God promises. Some 700 years before this time in, in, in Luke chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah had written these words in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. A feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, a food of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. God will swallow up death forever in this feast, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away, for the Lord has spoken. Now, you might not know much about Moses. You might not know a whole lot about Elijah or Isaiah. But it's pretty clear if you hear those echoes, this meal, this miracle is designed to reveal Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. This meal reveals Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. 
But the second clue, that's the first clue, okay? All those Old Testament. But the second clue is why this, why this miracle is such a big deal has to do with the function of miracles. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon about, uh, I'm preaching about this miracle, but several weeks ago I preached a sermon about all the miracles. And because I, I realized that for many of you, if you're investigating Christianity, uh, or even if, you're, if, even if you believe, you're like, miracles are tough. You know, like, that, do I really believe these things happened? Uh, go back and listen to that sermon. But one of the main points was that, you know, one of the things that's surprising about the miracles in the New Testament is actually that there's not more. You know, if Jesus could do all this, why, why are not more miracles recorded? We also talked about in that sermon how these uh, miracles are not necessarily trying to prove that Jesus is God and it's not Jesus trying to show off. We also talked about the fact that miracle, that actually word miracle only occurs once in the New Testament. What we said is that the best way to understand miracles are as signs. The best way to understand miracles is signs pointing forward and backward, but pointing forward primarily to something that is to come. Pointing to what things will be like. One of my favorite things, I've told you this before, about going to the movies, and Allison, she feels the same way. Whenever we go to the movie, we're like, we got to get there 20 minutes early because we cannot miss the previews. Like, because the movie may or may not be good, but they're going to make sure the previews are good, right? And what are the previews? The previews are telling, they're, they're, they're small, but they're pointing forward to a coming attraction, which you will enjoy. And the miracles are like that, but in this case, the fullness is great. The next movie, the real movie, you know, sometimes the preview is frankly better than the movie, but not in this case. This is a preview. This is a sign pointing forward. It is a sign feeding 5,000 people, and it points to Jesus' identity, and it points to the nature of his kingdom. Okay, longer than usual introduction. I promise I won't go too long. I'm watching the clock. But I want to say three, about, talk about three signs from this Three signs from this miracle. It's a sign of welcome, it's a sign of provision, and it's a sign of hope and satisfaction. A sign of welcome, provision, and then hope and satisfaction. I'm putting those two together. First, this is a sign of welcome. Look with me at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 6, before the story. The disciple, this is important to see that what's happening in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. In, chapters, in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 9, the disciples are sent out on a mission by Jesus. They're sent out to preach the good news and to heal. And then they have come back in, in, the, in the verses we're looking at, and Jesus has taken them away to an out-of-the-way place. Verse 10 says it's a place called Bethsaida. And because I wouldn't normally do this, but uh, many of you have been looking at maps of Israel in the last 10 days, sadly. Uh, so you'll understand Gaza is in the southwest of Israel. Bethsaida is in the northeast. So it's actually the opposite corner from where all the news is in the last week. The opposite of Gaza is in the southwest. Bethsaida is on the top of the Sea of Galilee in the northeast of Israel. It's basically the border of, of ancient Israel. Verse 12 tells us it's a desolate location. It probably means it's outside of Bethsaida but on the far reaches of uh, the Jewish influence. And Jesus has taken his disciples who have been on mission. He's taken them there for a brief retreat uh, to debrief the mission, a little rest and recreation, a little R&R. But then verse 11, when the crowds learned it, when they learned that Jesus was in the region and had gone there, they followed him, and I love this line, and Jesus welcomed them. <laughs> I mean, he is... Jesus welcomed. They are cramping his vacation. They're cramping his staff retreat. They're cramping his me time, his downtime. And yet, what does it say? Jesus welcomes them, which is to say he makes room for them. He teaches them, and then he feeds them. And isn't welcome a great word? 
I love the word welcome, right? I mean, think about it. Do you know that feeling when you feel welcomed by someone? Welcome into their home? Welcome. Making room. One of the great hopes for this church, never fully realized, always breaks my heart when it doesn't happen, is that we would be a welcoming church. We would be a, I mean, it's in our mission statement. The very first thing you see if you look at our website, welcome. We exist to welcome our neighbors to grow together in Christ and serve God in our community world. It's one reason as a church that we try to throw parties. We want to be known as the, we want to be known as the throwing the best parties on the North Shore. The reason, why do we want to throw good parties? Luke 9, 11, Jesus welcomed a crowd of 5,000. He welcomed them. But the most obvious thing about this story is easy to overlook. The most obvious thing about Jesus welcoming people is the easiest to overlook. And it is quite simply this. Jesus feeds hungry people. <laughs> That's really, like, it's easy to overlook. Like, Jesus feeds people who are hungry. I mean, you think about this. When you have felt welcome by someone in a party or their house or wherever it is, some of it, it probably involves, can I get you something to drink? Can I get you something to eat? You're hungry, you're thirsty, and to feel welcome is to have your needs provided for. Because in doing so, though, in doing so, in welcoming these people and meeting their physical needs, it's, he's saying that their bodies and that food matter. He is affirming the goodness, the goodness of the created order, the goodness of it. He, God, Jesus does care for your soul, but he also cares for your body. I mean, think about it. He created your body. He died for your body. And one day he will resurrect your body. I... Um, I've said for years that one of my favorite films, I'm not a foreign film nerd, I promise, but this is a foreign film that I'm about to cite that you should watch. It's called Babette's Feast. It's a Danish film. And I thought that I'd come across this film by myself, but I recently read the intellectual biography of Tim Keller, and I realized he talked about it in a sermon 30 years ago. So that's probably where I heard it and got the idea to watch it. But Babette's Feast, Babette's Feast, nonetheless, um, Tim Keller just deceased, pastor of a church in New York City for many years. But Babette's Feast is this Danish movie, and it's the story of a woman named Babette who has been exiled from Paris, and she retreats to this sect, this religious sect in, in Denmark uh, that's overseen by these two uh, spinster sisters who have never married, and she becomes their servant. And this is a Christian sect that is without joy. I mean, they don't want to taste their food. They don't drink any wine. They don't dance. They dress as plainly as they can. Uh, but what, some, what happened, and, and Babette just serves them. But one day she gets a message, and she, gets, she has won the lottery. She has won 10,000 francs, I think it is. And she has won the lottery, and she does not use it to buy her freedom or to go home. What she does, though, she travels back to Paris, and she brings all this amazing food and this amazing wine. It's, the, the filmmaker does a great job of capturing the beauty. You almost can taste it and smell it and feel it. Uh, the filmmaker does a great job. And she prepares this feast for these sisters in this religious, like, fundamentalist sect in Denmark. And as the people experience this meal, and then she served this one meal. She spends 10,000 francs on one meal. And as the people experience the meal, things start to melt inside them. Years of bitter feuds melt away over turtle soup. There's this picture, this feast that symbolizes a spiritual revival as these sectarian fundamentalist people reluctantly start to enjoy the bounty, the goodness of God's creation. And then in the time I knew that I didn't come across this myself because this is what Tim Keller had said in a sermon in 1993. The message is this. If you can't enjoy a good feast, 
If you can't enjoy a good party, you are not ready for God's future where we will eat and drink and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God invented the physical. He became physical to redeem us. This sign, first of all, of feeding 5,000 is a sign of welcome and even acknowledgement of our physical bodies. But the second thing that this sign, this, this story is a sign of, this miracle, is a sign of provision. And again, there's an interesting clue earlier in the text. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Jesus calls together the 12. He gives them power and authority over demons to cure diseases. And he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And he says this in verse 3. And he says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Okay, Jesus is sending people out. He has trained them enough, and he's given them some resources, his training. But he sends them out to proclaim his kingdom. But he tells them not to over-provision themselves, not to over-resource themselves. And pointedly, he tells them not to take bread for the simple reason that he wants them to live by faith and to trust that bread and all things needful will be provided. And the feeding of the 5,000 is in many ways the same thing. Because with limited resources, five loaves of bread and two fish, with limited resources and a modicum of faith, the guests' great needs are met. The The great needs of the people are met. And there's two details I want you to notice. First is verse 16. The disciples are the ones who distribute the bread. The disciples, okay? When the crowds, when, when the disciples had seen the crowd, they get overwhelmed. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough resources. Send the crowd away. We don't have enough resources. And Jesus says, no, no, no. <laughs> he involves them, and they are the ones who pass out the bread. Before their doubting eyes, they experience the fulfillment, and they experience it in their own hands. It's as if the miracle occurs in their hands. Jesus is involving them in his mission, inviting his disciples in the participation of his kingdom. I, uh, I did not grow up camping, um, but I have an eight-year-old son, and I want to get him outside. And in wanting to get him outside, I decided to adopt the hobby of camping, <laughs> I second-guessed that some. And so what that means is we live here in Winnetka. We were on fall break this week. And so I spent, we spent Thursday night in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, in the driving rain in a tent. We could not start a fire. We had hiked in, so there was no car camping. There was no car to retreat to. Uh, And I'm like, why do I do this? (laughs) But as we did it, I realized something. Because I thought camping was about getting us outside. But when you're camping with an eight-year-old, you realize it's more about that. It's about problem-solving. It's about overcoming adversity. And really, it's about a chance to involve our eight-year-old son in the work of camping. Again, a questionable decision because in the rain Thursday night, I let him and the other little boys set up the tent. Not because it was efficient. (laughs) 
Not because it was well done or quick. It would have been much easier and much quicker if I had done the work. I had to restrain myself as I saw them about to break the poles. I'm like, we're going to be so wet. And there were tears. There may have been a frustrated father. I don't know where he was. But they did it. Jesus involves his disciples. He could have done this without them. He could have rained down men. He could have done a lot of different things. He involves his disciples. The disciples are the instrument God uses to fulfill his purposes. And there's another detail I want you to see, though. And it's verse 17. <laughs> verse 17. There were leftovers, 12 basketfuls of leftovers, presumably gathered by the 12 disciples. I mean, can you imagine what it felt like to be one of those 12? It's like, I can't believe this. We started with five loaves. And he, a tangible reminder to the disciples that in his time and in his way, God will provide. Not only will he provide, he will over-provide. Twelve basketfuls. In Luke chapter 9, in the beginning part when he sends them out without bread and without a second tunic, and in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is asking the disciples to do something for which they are not resourced. He asks them to go into the unknown into the darkness, and to trust God completely. I've told this story before. Uh, I'm a very big Winston Churchill fan. And when William Manchester, the last lion, my favorite biography of, of Winston Churchill, he tells this story of King George VI. We know King George VI as the stuttering king from the King's Speech, immortalized by Colin Firth in the King's Speech. But William Manchester tells this story. Of course, that was the same time as Churchill. He tells this st story about uh, King George VI during the darkest hours of the war, during the blitz of Britain, the bombing of London. He says, the king said this. I, the King George VI says, I said to the man at the gate, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. And the man at the gate said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. And it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Our God loves faith. Our God loves for us to trust him. And our God loves for us to walk with empty hands into the darkness, into the unknown, trusting that he will meet us there. That whatever is before you, he will meet you. He gives you enough resources to get started. He points you where he wants you to go. But then he says, trust me, and I will provide. Where is God asking you to go? What is he asking you to do? With what is he asking you to trust him when the resources don't seem evident? If you're here today and you are investigating Jesus, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe he's asking you to take the next step. Maybe you're not ready to profess faith and get baptized. Maybe you are. Maybe, though, he is asking you to set up a meeting with a pastor, with Nick, with me, with somebody else, to ask your questions. Where is God calling you, asking you to go where you don't have all the answers? You don't have the resources. Maybe you're a student, and he wants you to talk to a friend or a professor about him. Maybe he's asking you, especially RUF students, tonight to your RUF dinner to invite a Palestinian or an Israeli or a Jewish friend to dinner tonight at the tea house. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is certainly calling you to feed hungry people. 
I mean, that's just really clear. He's calling you to home. The question is, how is God calling you and your family to get involved feeding people? Maybe it's something tangible. Maybe it's something to do with 18,000 and growing migrants who are now in Chicago. God is calling us to be engaged in feeding hungry people. Where is God calling you? As a church, what is he asking us to do with our limited resources? Where is he asking us to trust him? Where is he asking us to walk into the unknown, walk into the darkness? We've spoken of our mission of welcome, growing, and serving. Our vision as a church is to see lives transformed. Men and women, boys and girls, lives transformed by Jesus. And then for our church, with those transformed lives, to be a healing presence on the North Shore with our neighbors among our schools, to be a healing presence. And then through the North Shore to be a healing presence in Chicago in and beyond. Now we're, a, I don't know, it's probably 300 people under this roof right now. A mid to small size church. I don't know what we are. But you know what we have? We have the bread of life. We have the bread of life. What are we going to do with it? We have the bread of life. What are we going to do with it? You know, there's a formula that Jesus introduces here in verse 16 of Luke 9. It's a formula about bread. It's a formula about bread. It says this. Jesus took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. And he gave the bread. Four verbs. Took, blessed, broke, gave. Those four verbs happen a couple of times in the gospel, at the very end of the gospel. But the one I'll point out is in the Last Supper. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave the bread. That's what we're coming to in just a moment. And then Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is feeding a people through the hands of his disciples, but he is also giving them himself the bread of life. He is teaching his disciples then and now, which is to say he is teaching us, you have the bread of life. Give it. Give it. So we've seen how this meal is a sign of welcome. We've seen how it's a sign of provision. But if I'm honest, this meal still does not totally make sense. It doesn't. This miracle does not totally make sense. And the reason this miracle does not totally make sense is because it belongs to another world. It belongs to the world to which we head. It belongs to the world for which we hope. Which means, third, it is not just a sign of welcome and provision. It is a sign of hope and satisfaction. Remember, this meal does not remediate anything. No one is healed. No evil is cast out. No one's sins are forgiven. This is simply sharing a meal provided by one who claims to be the Messiah. But notice what verse 17 says. It says they ate and they were satisfied. They ate and they were satisfied. Now, I told you that this, this miracle occurs in all four Gospels. Well, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, Jesus teaches, John includes more of the teaching. And there Jesus says, after this miracle, he says this, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying and demonstrating, I am the bread of life. I am the only one who can satisfy you. Your career won't satisfy you. Money won't satisfy you. A large balance sheet won't satisfy you. Your children, their accomplishments, your grandchildren, they won't satisfy your achievement. Another relationship, a friend, a spouse, whoever will not satisfy. 
As one scholar says this, everything the world has to offer is unsatisfying, alienating, and makes us restless. We are afflicted with dissatisfaction, boredom, anxiety, and care. We are unable to find authentic rest, true peace. And yet Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, I will satisfy you and satisfy you in a way that nothing else does. I think the power of this illustration, the power of this illustration is that it's bread. It's never something you get past. You keep needing it. And yet as you keep needing it, you keep experiencing the satisfaction. Jesus is the bread of life. And this meal is a picture of welcome. It is a picture of provision, but ultimately is a picture of satisfaction and hope that you were made for more. You were made for more to experience the fullness of life, even life eternal.